We've been going pretty quickly, obviously, through the Minor Prophets. Spent two weeks in Nahum. We'll be spending two weeks in Habakkuk and then two weeks in Zephaniah. So Habakkuk chapters 1 and 2. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor and an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. 
Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let us pray. God, you are enthroned in your temple. We, the people of the earth, are to keep silence before you, to wait to hear what you will say. We thank you for this word before us this morning, this dialogue between Habakkuk and you, that we can see what it looks like to cry out to you, to pray to you, to be reminded, God, that you hear us when we cry, you hear us when we complain to you. May we be reminded and encouraged to come boldly before you, before your throne of grace, and bring our cares, our concerns, our worries, our anxieties, and yes, even our complaints to you. God, speak through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Isn't the question, why don't bad things happen to wicked people, just as perplexing as the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Yeah, said again. 
isn't the question, why don't bad things happen to wicked people? Just as perplexing as the question, why do bad things happen to good people? Now, we tend to easily dismiss that second question, why do bad things happen to good people, saying, well, no one is good but God alone. So, of course, bad things happen to, you know, to people. No one's good. But I don't think that actually helps us to deal with the heart of the question. There is clearly a contrast in the Bible between the righteous and the wicked. We saw it in Psalm 37. We also saw it in Nahum chapter 1 a couple weeks ago. We'll see it again here today in Habakkuk chapter 2. Nahum and Habakkuk are both wrestling with the problem of theodicy. I didn't mention this word a couple weeks ago in Nahum. It's an important word to know. This comes from the Lexham Bible Dictionary. Theodicy is from the Greek words theos, which is God. So theology, the study of God, right? Theos and DK, which is justice. So it translates to divine justice. The Odyssey is the attempt to defend God's omnipotence and goodness in the face of the problem of evil in the world. So in other words, if God is all powerful and he can stop evil, but he doesn't, the argument goes, how can God be good? And this is an argument that a lot of atheists will use and say, I can't believe in a God like that. Habakkuk wrestles with these questions, and he is not alone among biblical authors and biblical characters. But before we look at a few examples of this, I want us to consider these questions of theodicy for our own lives. How do we deal with this tension in our lives? And what should our response be in the face of uncertainty, especially when we witness or when we personally suffer from opposition or evil or injustice? Does the Bible have anything to say about these things? The answer, thankfully, is yes. Oftentimes it comes to us in the form of instruction. Most of the prophets, most of the minor prophets specifically, are instructions filled with instructions for God's people. Return to the Lord. Seek the Lord. Remember the Lord. In the New Testament, we're instructed along these lines to resist the devil, to fight with spiritual weapons and not physical weapons. And probably the biggest challenge we get is from our Lord Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount when he commands us to turn the other cheek and to go the extra mile and to give to the one who begs from us. And we might look at this list of external things and say, yeah, I can do that. It's not easy, but I can do that. Until Jesus immediately follows that up with, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? It's not enough just to to know these things, to intellectually give assent to them. We need to do them and to live them out in our lives, right? Now in our men's time uh, coming up this week, we're about to start the book of James. Almost everyone who has read their 
Bibles at all or been in church even a little bit knows the famous verse from James 2.17 that faith without works is dead. In chapter 1 of James, verses 22 to 24, James explained it this way. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, maybe a cracked mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. So it's not enough to know, just to know what the Bible says about what to do in the face of opposition, evil, and injustice. We need to actually do it. And thankfully, it has been modeled to us over and over again in Scripture. Before I give some examples of that, I want to give you an encouragement and an exhortation to be regularly reading your Bible not just cherry-picking your favorite sections. I know how this goes. I've been there in those seasons where you're just like, I just want to like go to my favorite like comfort section of the Bible. But it's really good to read through, to kind of systematically read through all of Scripture. It doesn't mean you have to read right from Genesis to Revelation. Pick a Bible reading plan that will help you read through uh, the Bible. There's a lot of them out there. Uh, You can on your phone, if you have like the ESV app, you could start a Bible reading plan today and it will, it will start, you can start it today and it will track it and you can read through the Bible in a year. It's really not that difficult to read through the whole Bible in a year, a couple chapters a day. Um, one of my personal favorites, if you are looking for a Bible reading plan is the McShane reading plan. Jesse's like, oh man, no way, too much. It is a little, it's four chapters a day. It's, it's not that bad. Um, you read through the Old Testament once, and then you read through the Psalms and the New Testament twice. And it's crazy. It's uncanny how many times you'll be in like Exodus and, and somewhere in the New Testament. And just you see themes that match together with the readings from all over different parts of the Bible. And I share all of this because two of the passages that, passages that I'm going to share with you are from my readings from this week. So I'm preparing for Habakkuk, and there are two readings this week that are just like like totally exactly related uh, to this. Now, I don't often do this because preaching is not supposed to be, hey, look what I learned in my quiet time this week. I don't just get up here and say, oh, I read this really cool thing. Like, here's a sermon about it. But there are really great parallels uh, to what we're seeing in Habakkuk. So these things are just too good not to to share. So again, we see instruction in scripture, and then we see things modeled for us. Moses and Job model action in the form of prayer to God. They cry out to God in the midst of their distress as they seek to understand what is going on and seek to understand why they are suffering, why God's people are suffering and the wicked are prospering. In Exodus 5, after Pharaoh takes away the straw from the Hebrews and doesn't reduce their daily brick production quota, the people come to Moses and Aaron and they complain and they say, hey, what is going on? What does Moses do? He doesn't clap back at them. He doesn't get in their face. No, he cries out to the Lord. Exodus 5, beginning in verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord. Why have you done evil to this people? 
Why did you ever send me? Something sometimes church planters say, God, why? I'm just kidding. Why did you ever send me here, God? Why did you ever call me to this? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. This is raw emotion from Moses, complete and total honesty with the Lord in the face of extremely trying circumstances. What about Job? In Job chapter 20, Zophar tries to explain that the wicked will suffer for the evil of their ways. In chapter 21, Job reminds his friend that the wicked actually prosper, which seems inconsistent with God's justice. Job says, as for me, my complaint, or is, says, as for me, is my complaint against man. Why should I not be impatient? Look at me and be appalled and lay your hand over your mouth. When I remember, I am dismayed and shuddering seizes my flesh. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail. Their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? Job wants to know why the wicked continue to prosper. So what does he do about it? Does he get on social media and complain about how bad the world around him is? No, he addresses God directly. In chapter 23, Job says this, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, speaking of God, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Did you catch the word that Job used in the first verse of both of these passages? Complaint. That's what the book of Habakkuk is. I know this has been a really long introduction, but I've been laboring to help us feel the weight of these things. To recognize and to admit that the Christian life is not all roses. It's more like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And we need to know that we have permission from God. We have permission to ask hard questions and to even say hard things to him. You can't read through the Psalms and not come away feeling this. Like, okay, the psalmist is saying all this hard stuff and asking all these hard questions. There's permission right there for you to do the same thing. It doesn't say at the beginning of the Psalms, okay, everything you read here is only for these special people who are really enlightened, right? This is God's word for us. We have that permission. And Habakkuk is unique in this regard. Among the minor prophets, he is the only one who presents to us this dialogue that he has with God. 
Now, the structure of Habakkuk is really pretty simple if you kind of look at the headings there. In chapter 1, 2 through 2, 5, there are two rounds of exchanges between Habakkuk and the Lord. Habakkuk prays and the Lord answers. We see that twice in from 1, 2 to 2, 5. Then 2, 6 through 20 are five woes against the Chaldeans. So we're going to look separately at each round of dialogue, and then we'll briefly look at the woes. Before we dive into the text, just a, a, a little short background on Habakkuk. I want to keep it simple. Three things, who, when, and why. First, who, who was Habakkuk? We don't know. Uh, he doesn't tell us who he is. There's some questions of even what his name means. It's actually not a Hebrew name. Uh, there's some connections. With, there's questions about different things that it could mean, uh, kind of borrowed from, from some other languages. So he doesn't tell us, and we don't know. There's, uh, if you want to go read, it's pretty short. Uh, Bell and the Dragon, which is an apocryphal book. Uh, so apparently, Daniel was in the lion's den, and Habakkuk gets like taken by the hair, and God like carries him and goes, he goes and feeds Daniel when he's in the lion's den. That's the only other mention that we have anywhere of Habakkuk, but um, that's not inspired scripture. So <clears throat> it's like really short and it's kind of an interesting read. So don't do your quiet time with Bell and the dragon, <clears throat> but um, it's kind of a fun read, but that's the only other mention anywhere of Habakkuk. So we don't really, we don't really know anything about him except that he tells us he's a prophet. Uh, the other who here is the Chaldeans, which is uh, the Babylon refers to the Babylonians. So <clears throat> that's what we have here. Uh, the when Pretty good idea that we have a pretty narrow window here of when Habakkuk wrote this, probably between 605 and 597 BC. This is between the Battle of Carchemish in 605 when the Babylonians defeated the Assyrians and became the, the new world power. And then 597 is when the Babylonians uh, first invaded Judah 11 years before the fall of Jerusalem. So sometime in between 605 and 597. <clears throat> And then the why is Habakkuk's complaint against the Lord for the things that are going on. So if you're taking notes, uh, kind of a little bit of an outline in round one of the dialogue, we see the Lord is at work, even if we don't see it. The Lord is at work, even if we don't see it. Habakkuk begins his complaint here with this barrage of questions, three questions that he directs right to the Lord. Verse 2, O Lord, how long? Something we see many times in the Psalms, that question, how long? How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? So the first two questions there come in verse 2. And then the third question comes in verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Now we're going to notice here these words see and look are going to be paired together several times. We'll see it again in verse 5, in verse 13, and then in chapter 2, verse 1. It becomes kind of this thematic part of the dialogue between Habakkuk and the Lord, seeing and looking. Habakkuk then describes the situation in Judah among God's people from the middle of verse 3. To the end of verse 4, destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. 
So justice goes forth perverted. Things in Judah are upside down. They're not the way they're supposed to be. Notice especially how verse 4 starts off. The law is paralyzed. The Torah of God, the thing that his people were supposed to abide by and live by so that they might have life, it is paralyzed. In the Hebrew, this word literally means that it's cold or it's numb because God's people are full of wickedness and injustice. His law has no effect on their lives. So Habakkuk has questions for God, and he wants some answers. But I'm not sure he was prepared for what he was about to hear. The Lord tells Habakkuk in verse 5 to look and to see, see those words again, to wonder, to be astounded. Why? For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. Verses 7 through 11 then go on to describe the ferocity of the Chaldeans as they conquer surrounding nations. Now, we're not told exactly what Habakkuk was thinking here, but it was probably something like, okay, God. There's injustice among your people. Why don't you just send some more prophets to warn them? Or why don't you even send a disease to humble them? God has done this before. Or some other obvious signs to get their attention. Why are you sending a nation more wicked than them to punish Judah for her wickedness? Does the punishment really fit the crime here? Obviously, we have to be careful in trying to apply this to our lives today. The overarching principle, as I mentioned, is that the Lord is at work even if we don't see it. This this is true even as we lament the state of evangelicalism, the evangelical church in America. It's true as we lament the state of our culture. It's true in a world filled with tyrannical rulers as it has always been. Now, the Minor Prophets are not a handbook for interpreting the 21st century American church or culture or current geopolitical turmoil. However, the Lord doesn't change. And he isn't any more surprised by our questions today than he was by Habakkuk's questions around 600 BC. He wants us to cry to him for help. He wants us to say, how long, O Lord, when we see some other crazy thing happening, when you see some video of somebody beating the daylights out of somebody for just saw something, this guy like picked up a shopping cart and threw it like right at a lady because she was like bumping in, you know, into him at the store. Like you just see that and you're like, what is like, what is wrong with people? Right? Like what is going on? It's crazy. And we should see that and we should say, how long, oh Lord? How long does this have to go on? How are we doing at this? It's easy, I'll be honest, it's easy to just complain to other people. It's easy to complain on social media. 
It's easy to work ourselves into a frenzy with the 24-7 news cycle. But how are we doing at taking our complaints to the Lord? Again, this is why being in God's word is so important. We see so many examples of this. And we learn that it's okay. We also learn that we have to be okay with whatever God has to say in response. That's the part we don't always like, right? We're okay with the, yeah, okay, I'll complain to God. I'll tell him what's on my mind. But then we have to hear what he has to say, right? We have to be okay with what he says in response. Habakkuk wasn't thrilled with God's response. So he pressed in even harder, beginning in verse 12, at the beginning of round two of his dialogue with the Lord, where we see that the Lord's timing is perfect and we must persevere. The Lord's timing is perfect and we must persevere. Habakkuk acknowledges here in verse 12 that God is from everlasting. God is eternal and unchanging. He acknowledges that he is holy. It is the Lord himself who has ordained and established the Chaldeans to judge and reprove his people. But he's still wondering why the Lord is using a nation as wicked as the Chaldeans. Look at verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He goes on to describe their ruthlessness in verses 14 through 17. How they are like fishermen gathering up people into their nets. Verse 17. This again is kind of a how long question. The he here is referring to the Chaldeans as a whole. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? How long, God, how long will you allow this wicked nation to continue to devour other nations into their net? Then we see Habakkuk ends his complaints in chapter 2, verse 1, and he waits for the Lord's answer. It says, I will take my stand at, the watch, at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see, again, look and see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. The answer from God comes in verses 2 through 5. Habakkuk is told to write down a vision that will eventually come to pass. Even if it's slow, he is supposed to wait for it. Now, we don't know exactly what the vision was that Habakkuk was told to write down. Some commentators say it's verse 4. Some say that it is the woes in verses 6 through 20. Some even say that it is chapter 3, verses 3 through 16. I'm fine saying D, all of the above, because we don't know for sure. But I think the point is, is that the Lord is telling Habakkuk to trust him, to wait on him, to wait on his perfect timing. Verse 4 is then given as a promise of how things would eventually shake out. Like we saw in Nahum, there's a clear contrast between those who walk with God and those who do not. The first part of verse 4, the his here again is referring to the Chaldeans and all those who oppose the Lord. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. 
This speaks of their pride, which is also seen in verse 5. Moreover, wine is a traitor that, if you see your footnote there, can also mean wealth. It might be a better word in this context. Wine or wealth is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. This is what the Chaldeans, the Babylonians would, would do. They were never at rest. They were always wanting more. This is the opposite of waiting on the Lord. This is not trusting God. This is trying to make a name for themselves. But in contrast, the second half of verse four describes those who do wait on the Lord and those who do trust in him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. This should be a familiar verse to us as it is quoted three times in the New Testament. Paul quotes it in Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3.11 to support the doctrine of justification by faith. That it is not by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ that we are justified in God's sight and that we are declared righteous. While we rejoice in that truth of forensic the forensic declaration that we are no longer guilty in God's sight because Jesus Christ has taken our sin upon himself and he has given us his righteousness. That's actually not what Habakkuk is describing here. Some people try to claim that Paul created this idea of justification by faith. This is not a new doctrine that Paul created. We're told in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Paul actually quotes this earlier in Galatians 3 before he quotes from Habakkuk. Habakkuk, no doubt, believed in the doctrine of justification by faith. But he's not describing here what happened to Abraham in Genesis 15.6 or what Paul describes in Romans or Galatians. He's already assuming that when he says the righteous. O. Palmer Robertson has a helpful translation of this phrase in Habakkuk that might help us understand this a little bit better. He says, he translates this first, but the justified, in parentheses, by faith, okay, but the justified, by faith, shall live by his steadfast trust. But the justified, by faith, shall live by his steadfast trust. Of course, the righteous one here is justified by faith. But how shall he live? That's the emphasis here in Habakkuk. And again, it's contrasted with the proud, wicked man. The justified by faith shall live by his steadfast trust. If you look at your footnote there for the word faith in verse 4 down below, it says faithfulness. Now, this is the sense here, and it's also the sense in the third place that Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted in the New Testament, Hebrews 10.38. The focus of Hebrews chapter 10 is all about persevering and not giving up. The author of Hebrews, starting in 10.35, says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. 
but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. The emphasis in Hebrews 10, as it is in Habakkuk 2, is on persevering in our faith while we wait on the Lord. It's not on that initial act of justification that God does. Again, Habakkuk believed in that, right? But that's not what he's talking about here. Waiting is really hard, isn't it? And it's become increasingly hard in our instant gratification world. I love Amazon Prime two-day delivery, right? But that doesn't help me with my patience at all, right? I can get whatever I want almost instantly, and I don't have to wait for anything anymore. We have instant access to movies and TV shows in the palm of our hand. No need to wait. Might be hard for some of you to believe, but there was a day when there was such a thing as video stores. And when a new movie came out, like on a Friday night, if you didn't get there in time, you didn't get the VHS of your favorite movie. You had to get some second rate movie and maybe come back the next day and hope that it was there. So how do we learn to wait today? I think it's helpful to differentiate between two types of waiting, passive waiting and active waiting. Passive waiting is for things that are beyond our control that we can't change. Christmas is coming on December 25th, and we can't change that, right? I mean, unless some crazy politician tries to pass some bill to like make Christmas in June or something, it's going to be on December 25th for the rest of history, right? And we have to wait every year until that comes. That's passive waiting. We can't, we can't change it. We can't do anything about it. There's just things that are beyond our control. And then there's active waiting. Active waiting involves action. If you suddenly lose your job and you say, well, I'm just going to wait on the Lord to drop a job into my lap, you're probably going to be waiting a long time. Now, I'm not saying God couldn't do that, right? But as you wait, you need to be filling out applications. You need to be making phone calls. You need to be brushing up your resume, right? There's an active element to that waiting. Then you have to wait to hear back. But you're, you're not just sitting around doing nothing. You're active in that process. So how do we both passively and actively wait on the Lord? If passive waiting involves things that are beyond our control, then we must learn to be content with God's timing and to trust that he will bring his purposes to pass in the world and in our lives as he sees fit. We don't pray thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven for no reason. But even as we pray that, admitting that there is a passiveness to it, we are still active, right? Prayer is a great way to be active in waiting. The entire book of Habakkuk is centered on prayer. Chapter 3, which Donovan is going to be preaching on next Sunday, begins a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet. So all of chapter 3 is a prayer. Being in God's word is another way to be active in our waiting. We aren't meant to read our Bibles just to learn a bunch of information about events that happened 2,000 plus years ago. 
We don't read it to, to win a Bible trivia competition, right? We're not trying to just gain all this information. We're trying to wait on God. We're trying to know what God says to his people. We read our Bibles because God's word is living and active. And we gain wisdom to face the uncertainties of the future with faith. We stand in the righteousness of Christ that is ours by faith. And then we live by faithfulness, meaning that we trust and obey God while we wait. Seeking wisdom and counsel from our brothers and sisters in Christ is another way that we can actively wait. It's a way that we can acknowledge that we are dependent upon others in the body of Christ. And then finally, being gathered corporately for worship is a great way to actively wait on the Lord. To be reminded week in and week out of the truths of the gospel that we who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. And we wait in the already and not yet reality that though the world around us rages against the Lord and rages against his church, we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's the reminder that comes from the rest of chapter 2 of Habakkuk in verses 6 through 20, which contains these woes that are spoken against the puffed up ones who oppose the Lord. The first four woes all deal with oppression, and then the fifth deals with idolatry. I'm not going to be able to dig deeply into this, so I'd encourage you to take some time to read through these woes uh, on your own. But I just want to focus on one verse. Again, a very familiar verse that you've probably heard quoted before in different ways. Verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This verse is at the heart of the missionary undertaking that the church has been called to, to preach the gospel to all nations, to see people from every tribe and language and nation and people bow the knee before King Jesus. And we know that this will not be an easy task, that it will not be without opposition. For we are reminded by Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God is going to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory through his church as broken and as bad at waiting on the Lord as she may be. So church, let us rejoice that God has opened our eyes to see his glory. Let us seek to make him known to those whose eyes are still blinded so that they might see his glory. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this passage of scripture, God, from your holy word, this reminder from Habakkuk, God, that we can come boldly before you. We can come with our complaints. We can come with our questions. God, we can seek to understand 
why the nations rage. We can ask how long, God, how long will your people suffer? How long until you return and make things all right? And in the meantime, we wait as you tell us to do. We wait and we trust and we live faithful lives in this world knowing that one day you will make all things right. We wait passively for the things that are beyond our control and we wait actively in the ways that we can approach you, the ways that we can engage with these questions, the ways that we can engage with others. God, we ask that you would build us up as a people. God, that you would grow us to be a people who wait on you, who trust you more. God, who seek your face, who seek to understand all of these dynamics, all of these questions that we have, and who are content, God, at the end of the day, to say, your will be done. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.